So this is BSing with Sean K. I'm your host, Sean Neese. Today I'm going to play you an interview I did with spoken word poet, uh, disabilities rights activist, graphic novelist, and uh, youth organizer, Iman Ramawi. And to give a little backstory, uh, I recently, a couple episodes ago, I interviewed Viviana Duncan, who hosts... Uh, the Stark Reality Open Mic Night in New York City. And that's sort of a anything goes, anything, you know, no censorship uh, open mic venue. And I recently filmed the documentary on that open mic night and wrote an article in the last BSing with Sean K. newsletter on it. And the featured performer that night was Eman Bermawi. So Eman works with many nonprofits in New York City including the Audre Lure Project uh, and Casa Atabek Ake and the Jed Foundation. And she's an educator and teaches creative writing, community organizing, political science, and history workshops for youth in New York City. And between 2013 and 2014, Ramami experienced problems with her health and as a result lost both her legs. And after this, she started an organization called Amped Up, a clothing line for and by amputees and has written children's books and graphic novels where disabled people are the main characters. So it took it took a while to get this interview recorded. Uh, we had a lot of it also we we couldn't we originally wanted to record it in person but the, there was a lot of trouble with the weather. So we were going to do it over Google Chat and broadcast it live and there was some technical difficulties but that that didn't quite work out. And then we were going to record it over Skype, but then the Skype recorder that I usually use uh, was having a lot of problems. So uh, after about an hour of technical difficulties, we finally found a way to record it. I recorded her through Audacity, and I recorded my own voice through Evernote, and it ended up sounding pretty good. So we persevered, and we got it done. And I'll let the rest of the interview... I'll. I'll just let the interview speak for itself with everything else. And, uh, yeah, here it is. I hope you enjoy it. So we improvised. Indeed. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta do a life sometimes. (laughs) So here we are BSing with uh, Sean Kay and Eman Ramawi. Yes, Eman Ramawi. Eman Ramawi. Yes. So uh, do you want to tell us about yourself, I guess? um... Um... Sure. Well, if anybody can see the video eventually with all of our sounds together, um, I uh, am a native New Yorker, grew up here, been here my entire life. I've tried to move several times, but it just never worked out. Something kept me in New York time and time again, so I'm still here. Um, I love cats. That's what I was mentioning. If you could see me, I have my kitty ears, my headphones on. Um I work at the New York Lawyers for the Public Interest doing disability justice work. Um, 
because people often treat folks that are elderly and disabled like we're garbage. And I don't really like that. And so I just try to use my big smart mouth in doing my disability justice work. Um, And I'm also a double amputee. I've been an amputee about four years, um, above knee and below knee. And I'm still learning new things about it, new processes, because you don't really, it's not like you know all the things about what it's like to be an amputee unless you lose your limb. (laughs) Um, And so this is definitely still in the amputee world. I'm still a complete baby and a newbie and rightfully so because learning how to bend a mechanical knee takes practice and work. Um, and, uh, I'm the oldest of three, well, four, but three, um, between my, 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 both my parents. Um, I drink a ton of coffee all the time. I don't know what else, what, there's so many things about me that are just interesting and, crazy and fun and cool and weird. And I always tell folks that like me being an amputee is not the weirdest thing about me. I can tell you that much. Uh, and, and I am, I am way more than just, uh, just an amputee or just somebody with a disability. So and that's, what that, you, that's what you try to show like in a lot of your poems, right? The, yeah. Yeah. I mean, because you know, people think when you have a, dis- I mean, even before I lost my legs, I had, leg braces for like three or four years because I have an aggressive form of lupus and things happen to me that don't normally happen to other people with lupus. Um, and I didn't consider myself disabled back then, even though I was paralyzed from the neck down and had to relearn how to walk and then had leg braces and I bounced back, but I was like, Oh, it's okay. As long as I have my braces on, it's not a big deal, whatever. I'm not really disabled even though everyone around me considered me disabled. And so it took me losing my limbs, sort of going through the the stages of grief to let it go and not necessarily reinvent myself, but accept myself. That's when I really learned that um, being disabled is not a bad thing. It's not a less, I'm not less than, I'm not, you know, just a throwaway. I'm, I'm actually better than I was when I still had my legs. So it's not, you know, it's, and it's, and it took me losing my legs to actually be genuinely happy. I think I was faking it a lot in my twenties, um, to sort of save, uh, I guess like to, to make sure other people were okay. I had to be okay. Um, but then when I realized when I was like 29 and started to go through all this, I was like, wow, you know, I just need to be happy for me. And if other people aren't okay with that, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to tell them, but I can honestly say that I am genuinely in a much better place than I was before. Hmm. So. so, so it made you more sure of yourself, I guess, or maybe um, you take less for I, granted or you, you value, I don't know. I think, I think it just, uh, it just made me be more of a real person. Like, I I wouldn't really, and I still struggle with this, like being honest and open with folks um, about how I'm feeling and what I'm doing and how I'm doing and all that stuff. I used to just be like, I'm fine all the time. And now I'm more honest about it, being like, no, I am not fine all the time. I'm not superwoman. 
I don't, honestly, in my opinion, I don't, I don't owe anybody shit. <laughs> like, and if, and if I have to do things to take care of myself, then I need to do that. And now I'm like, I'm 33, I'll be 34 in April. And like, I feel like it took me sort of like growing up and becoming more of an adult to like actually adult in a better way. And I still, I still have tons of things to work on. I'm, I'm, constantly on the the journey to better self discovery and and not necessarily like adulting better but being the kind of person that I want other people to be just being that and hoping that my actions inspire other people to not be dicks like we're not, no one's, no one is on an island by themselves. Like we need each other to exist and to survive. And if anybody thinks that they're on an island by themselves, they should actually go to an island and be by themselves. Like we all, we all need each other. And the same goes for being disabled. Like if you asked me four years ago, if I was going to be an amputee, I would have been like, that's never going to happen. It goes for anybody. Anybody at any time can join the disability club. No one is exempt from it, ever. <laughs> and I, you know, my lupus didn't start to get insane until I was like 25 or 26. But like, it doesn't have to be that. I know tons of amputees who had, uh, who got hit by cars, or tons of people in wheelchairs that, that got into car accidents or had a bad fall on a trip or whatever. And so, you know, some folks are like, oh, were you born that way? No, I wasn't. I didn't come out of my mother's womb with metal legs on. Like, that's not how that works. And, you know, it's just like people automatically assume that you're suddenly, that you're either a saint or you don't have uh, a personality or you don't have, uh, bills to pay as if the government suddenly like, Oh, here you're disabled. You get every, no, you get shit. You get nothing. And I was told that because I wasn't mentally incapacitated, I couldn't get help. And I'm like, okay, so you guys are going to help me get a job. No, that's your, that's your responsibility. Oh, so if people want to discriminate against me, and just say, you're not qualified, but really they don't want someone, when I was still in a wheelchair, I was looking. If they want to discriminate against me, they can. And the government just doesn't give a shit because they think they're exempt from everything too. It's, it's just like, sometimes I'm like, well, I could just go to another country, except I was born in the U.S. Why should I go someplace else just to make it, just to make my life better when I could stay here and make life better for myself and for other people. So, and I, I go on tangents a lot because I, my coffee is still pretty. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's kind of the style on the show. I kind of let people go on their tangents and then I, yeah. <laughs> but, um, so, yeah, so th you're saying that there's really not a lot of uh, representation for people who are disabled, uh, like in the U.S., like, I mean, there's some, and, and folks are, folks think that like when you're young and disabled, you can all of a sudden join the Par Paralympics and, and run a bunch of track and do all this stuff on a wheelchair. It's just super cool. It's awesome. Not everybody has that physical 
ability to do that, whether you're disabled or not. And if I can't physically do something, I don't want for someone else to feel like, or if I can do something physically, I don't want someone to feel like, oh, well, I, I can't, so I don't, I don't deserve this, or I don't, I shouldn't get that. It's the idea of disability in this country is let's just put them all in a back room, in a closet, in a nursing home, and not think about it. And as someone who has been in nursing home rehab places twice, fuck that. Yeah. I'm not going back ever. <laughs> ever, ever, ever. Yeah. And, and... And people just, like, throw <laughs> away their parents, too, sometimes. They, like, yeah. yeah, they, they yeah. throw their parents away thinking that they're doing the right thing for them. Yeah. When it's not, and I and I'm not just speaking speaking from it as an outside observer. I'm speaking from it as someone who has been in these places, and even a few years ago, uh, so no, this was actually over four years ago. I was in my first year of being an amputee, and even some uh, state folks came through, and I told them about all the illegal shit that was going on. And they said, okay, okay, we'll investigate it. And nothing happened. Nothing changed. So I'm just like, wow, y'all don't care as long as you get paid, as long as the nursing home gets paid, as what, long was it as... like abuse uh, or... What do you mean illegal? Th- there yeah. was... People were randomly being drugged hmm. to calm them down when they seem like a problem. Oh, and I they see. did the same thing to me, too. And I did not appreciate being drugged without my permission or just because they wanted me to calm down and that scared the shit out of me. I was like, wait, I thought I'm taking a baby aspirin and you're giving me something else. And I felt it took me a good two and a half days to feel like myself again. And it was solely because I was giving the people in the nursing home advice when they'd ask me. And it's not like I'm going to be like, oh, I don't know. I've, I've been a community organizer since I was 16. So if I see someone struggling with something, if I see someone going through anything, I'm going to try to help them. Yeah. Like, and, and they didn't like that at all. And so I, and that's, I can... So that's I, why I, they drugged you as a... Pro- and th- yeah. There was no way to, like, expose these people or anything? Or? No, when you, when you go into, like, a rehab place... You expose their names right now on this podcast. <laughs> I mean, it was it was Oxford Nursing Home in Fort yeah. Greene, Brooklyn. Fuck them. Yeah, hey, and Oxford I, Nursing I, Home, fuck you. We're exposing you, calling you out. Like, <laughs> no, and, like, I would put stuff up on Facebook all the time. I would take pictures of the, the aides sleeping in the corner. I would, I would freaking post a whole bunch of shit. I would tell them about all this stuff going on. And nothing happened because it was um, it was like ninety five percent elderly people there, and then like a sprinkle of folks that were close to my age, but there weren't that many, and so they were all drugged up all the time. And when I left, they were letting in folks, uh, random people from homeless shelters, which is fine. Everybody needs a home, but you can't put people in there who have uh, mental illnesses with folks that are just elderly because I heard that a lot of violent things were going on and they weren't doing anything about it. And I'm like, wow, y'all just really don't give a shit, huh? It's just, 
it's amazing to me that this country that's America is so awesome. When my dad came to this country, he was so thrilled to be here. He was so, I was like, I'm going to be the best American ever, blah. <laughs> but if my dad was still alive and he saw what was going on in this country, he'd be like, wow, this is the country I came to. A country that not only can elect Trumpicana and his bullshit, but doesn't care about people when they're ill or when they're uh, in their 60s or 70s like what are what are we working towards what are we what are we living for if not to take care of the people in need and also make sure that nobody gets left behind or forgotten and i feel like in every community whether it's uh the african american community or palestinian community or women's community or um LGBT community or anything, disability is always left out, and people because people aren't even thinking about it. And I wasn't thinking about it ten years ago, or even five years ago. When I, I and I noticed, like in nursing homes, they kind of treat you talk to the people like they're little kids or something too, even if they're not doing uh, stuff that extreme. Yeah. And I fucking hate that. Yeah. I hate that with passion. <laughs> people do that to me now. Yeah. And I'm just like, are you? You're, wait, are you talking to me like that? Oh, I didn't mean anything by it. I'm like, okay, let me go ask the lawyers that I work with in their office and, and get back to you on that. And that's that's like the, such a disrespectful thing to inf- infantilize. Is that what that's called? Yeah. Yeah, inf- yeah like I'm not a fucking child. Yeah. <laughs> I'm both our fucking children. No, even if, even if it was someone with... Um, with like dementia or Alzheimer's or having some sort of other mental illness, you still don't belittle someone and talk to them like they're a fucking child, unless they're a fucking child. Yeah, <laughs> like it just doesn't it doesn't make sense to me that that even that that even happens. But I think it's because we're looked at as useless, then yeah. we're treated like we're useless, yeah. and it's. I just don't understand. I don't understand how people, even before I was an amputee, even before my lupus was diagnosed years and years ago, my dad always taught me respect people, treat them like they're human beings. And that's, that's where I begin and end. And so I talk to everyone the same way. Like, People get the same me all the time. And some folks are like, oh, well, how can you be friends with people? Excuse me? What do you mean how can I be friends with people like that? What do you mean What do you mean by people like that? Yeah. Or you people? I fucking hate that too. Yeah. And it's just like people, unfortunately, folks don't see that they're being discriminatory when they say you people. But they are. And, you know, folks need to, I did this interview a few months ago on a WBAI uh, about the, the ARG campaign that I'm working on. And, and I was just like, the bottom line is disabled people are not non-people. We have lives too. We have everything going on with us, regardless of what it is, the same exact way. So why would you treat them different? from the way you're treated. Like, it just doesn't make sense to me. And some folks are just like, oh, well, you know, it's because they are different. No, I'm not. I'm still I'm still a woman. I still, I'm, I'm still young-ish. 
I still have a job. I still have bills. I still have, I still have so many things going on. So how could I be different from you when the only difference is our legs? Like it just, or, or if someone's in a wheelchair, the only difference is someone's in a, in a wheelchair. Like that's the only difference between us and you're making such a big deal out of it. It's ridiculous, but it's, I mean, I'm not sure how other countries are. And I know some countries I'd probably be dead already. Uh, but like, I just can't stand for that kind of disrespectful bullshit. Like I'm just not down with it and I don't like it or appreciate it. Not only for myself, but for anyone else. Yeah. So. I, why do you think that is that like people look away? Like it's just something people don't want to deal with or they don't want to face like that that could happen no. to them or I don't know. No, I don't think that, not only that they don't want to deal with it is that they don't think that they're ever going to be affected by it at all. And so I remember what I was like when I was 14 or 15 and I thought nothing, I'd, I'd live forever. I'd be young forever. Nothing's ever going to happen to me ever. And that's like the biggest crack of bullshit ever. Like <laughs> we're human beings. We can have something happen at any time. And, you know, people don't, people only ignore me when I'm walking down the street and they have to rush past me. But most, most of the time, people are just staring at me and staring at me in a way that, like, for example, if I go into a bar or go into a restaurant or something, it's like the record stops when I come into place. And I just have to be all like, yeah, I know I look good today, so that's why y'all looking at me. But that's not it. They're looking at my legs and they're looking at my walker. And it's just like, most days, I'm like, whatever. I don't give a shit. I don't care. You're looking. I know I look good. That's it. Some days, I'm like, look at me again, and I'm going to show you how we do in Jamaica, Queens, because I'm not feeling it. And sometimes, I, it's like some days or after I have a, a long day at work, and I just want to go down the street to get a drink or whatever, Like people are just always like, oh, oh, so good for you. What's good for me? Like, what are you talking about? You wouldn't say that to anyone else. But you feel the need to go out of your way to make me seem like an exceptional person because I'm going for a drink after work. Only because of my legs. Mm. And it just drives me crazy. It's just like, if, if you wouldn't say that to anyone else, don't fix your face to say that to me. Because it just doesn't... It doesn't make sense to me that you would feel the need to to single me out. And it's like, fine, great. I'm an anomaly. I get it. Fine. But if I'm just being a person and you're being a person and we're someplace spending money being people, just be a fucking person to me. Like, there's nothing, there's nothing special about me going and having a freaking uh, a glass of wine at a place. How's that special? Are, is it because that you don't see that there are more disabilities around than you think? Like tons of invisible disabilities too? Or is it that you just think that I should be, because I'm not institutionalized, I'm suddenly uh, special or different, but I'm not the only one out living my life. Like it's, I'm not an exception. It's just people need to open their minds to it. Like even before I started using Accessoride, 
I never saw those vehicles, even though they were around. I didn't see them until I started using them. And it was like, okay, now I see them. And so when people have their, their rose-colored glasses on and they're not paying attention to what's actually there, it's not, it's, it's not, I am quite sure that there are a lot more invisible disabilities going on than people realize and or will admit. So uh, how did you get started with poetry? I know you started like when you're teens, but uh, like, what did you start writing about? What motivated you to write? Um, so I started, I actually started writing when I was around like 11 or 12. I, um, I had to write some, some, you know, like in middle school when they're like, Oh, you know, write something, write about what you see outside or write about this book that you read or whatever. And I started writing and I was just like, wow, I actually kind of like this. This is okay. I can, I can get down with this. Um, and I kept telling my dad that I was going to be a veterinarian cause I love animals so much you know, especially cats, you know, and, um, I kept telling him, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll be a veterinarian. And then he had this girlfriend that told me about crazy chihuahuas and it sort of scared me away, um, from doing that because she was so, she was, she, she was telling me these very insane stories about these chihuahuas. And I'm just like, Oh my God, I don't want chihuahuas biting up my hands. Um, and at the same time I was like, reading so much and I was writing everything all the time and making up stories just out of nowhere. Um, and I remember when I told my dad, I had to be like 13. This was like a year or two before he passed. I was like, daddy, I'm going to be a writer. And he was like, how are you going to make money doing that? I was like, I will, I'll show you, I will make money. And, uh, and funny enough, years later, I was like selling little chat books at the poetry readings and stuff. And like, Putting and, and having it put out there so that people could really get it and like recording my performances and all this stuff. And, you know, I'm sure from wherever in the ether, he, wherever he is, he, you know, is, is proud of whatever accomplishments. Um, but I started, I started my writing as a, uh, sort of like as my, my journaling at first. And then it took like a whole other, like it, it took a whole other form of like being poetry and being stories. And I had, I, well, I still sort of have a vivid imagination and I would have these crazy dreams sometimes. And I'd be like, what the heck is this? And I'd wake up immediately and just start writing and writing and writing whatever the, the story was or where, whatever parallel universe I happen to be in, in my dream, I'm like convinced that like I'm fighting demons in a parallel universe in my sleep only because every time I wake up, I have bruises all over my body and I'm just like, I don't know how else this would show up, but it does. And so I, you know, I don't know how real that is, but who knows? I, I think it is. And it is what it is. Um, but I, I, I would write a lot of sci-fi stuff and lots of uh, gory, violent, bloody, crazy stuff, too. <laughs> like but horror was, kind of stuff? Yeah, like, it was like yeah. horror, but it was like psychological hmm. stuff, too. Like, nice. You know, like... So you kind of go, like, both, way, like, fiction and then nonfiction. Yeah, and, like, like I, I, would write, I would write a lot of that when I was a teenager because I had... I was up late all the time and just, like fiercely writing and the computer was just like getting popular and the internet was getting popular around then. And I was just like, okay, I'm just going to keep on 
keep on writing and, and whatever comes out, it comes out and it'll be awesome. Um, and you know, it, I, I got into the more political writing when I was like 16. Um, because I was, you know, people think that like all this, like police brutality and this racial tension and all this stuff is new. It's not new. Smartphones are new. That's the only thing that's new. People can actually capture it. But before that, I would just see stuff on the news or see stuff in my neighborhood. And it bothered the heck out of me that, like, the world was like this. That because I'm lighter skin, I get treated differently from my brother and sister or my mother. And I had to verbalize it and I had to let it out there. And I had to be like, look, this is not. And I remember one of the first poems I performed, I had to be 15 or 16. And I was in this poetry performance group called Reverb. And I was always a spunky kid. I was always, a, you know, because of how I grew up, like, I read a lot. I, I uh, wore weird outfits. I had my goth face. Like, it was, you know, the usual teenage stuff. Um, and so people just thought I was a smart weirdo in high school. But they didn't think that I was, like... <laughs> such a, 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 a force with the poetry or anything. And I remember when I did this poem called Rage and people were stunned that I had such a powerful presence and a powerful voice. And I just remember I'm on the stage and I like jump off the stage and the first five rows like jump back. <laughs> like You guys are so funny. Like, what did you think? Like, I wasn't going to like go 100%. And I did. And I, and after that, I was just like, I was like the, I mean, it was Richmond Hill high school in Queens. It wasn't like a freaking big deal. Cause my dad didn't want me going to Manhattan. So I got accepted to the school of, uh, um, performing arts in Manhattan. And my dad was like, I don't want you to ride a train by yourself. And I was like, really, really? And then I just stayed at Richmond, which, whatever, it wasn't a big deal. Because I still got to do what I was doing there. Um, and that's when I, like, when I had that performance when I was 15, like, that's when I really found that, that bug in me that I, like, loved to perform. And I loved being on stage. And it, and it made me feel so alive and so... Um, so, like, you could, you could see me. Okay. Um, and, um, you know, I, I, uh, I miss, like, I, I, when I was hosting those poetry readings with Viviana and Frank, um, and Camillo, like, it was, it was some of the best times of my life being, just performing, and that kept me writing constantly, like, because it was in my, in my face a couple times a week, every week, consistently, that kept me that kept me writing even while I was going through all this stuff with my health and my life and my schooling and my jobs to my, uh, living situations. Like I was always going through all this stuff, but I kept it as a constant. And then I sort of fell off a little bit, um, because I had so much stuff going on and writing for me was always, uh, was always completely brutally honest and I couldn't be honest with myself about how I felt about how my life was going. And so I just stopped with the writing altogether. 
And then when I started writing again, probably when I was like 29 or 30, I, I recognized that I, I wasn't really like completely conscious that I was doing that being like, okay, I write and I'm going to be honest with it all the time. And I stopped writing because I couldn't be honest with myself about how I felt. And it took me a while to like recognize that I was doing that. But when I did, I was actually, it, it sort of made some of my writing better. It made it, it, it brought me back to when I was a teenager and how I was being with my writing at the time. Um, and I, and I still, like I was saying much earlier, I still struggle with that sometimes. Like being honest on paper about the way my life has been. And, and it goes back to like, not necessarily grieving parts of my life, but remembering it in an honest and open way so that other people can get something from it. Um, Cause sometimes people automatically assume that I, I can be like, I, I can be there for everybody all the time, a hundred percent. And it's just like, well, I, I can try to be there for everybody a hundred percent of the time, but I don't know if I can. And so if I can be there for people like 70 or 80% of the time, and that's what I can do and I can do it through my writing, then I can, I can do that. I just, I just feel like sometimes with the writing, it's got, it's got to be coming from an honest, truthful place. And if it's not, then people can sort of tell that it's not or that it's not, it's not going to be good, good writing, or it's not going to be a good enough story to tell. And like, for example, like I've been working on my, my, the book about my life and I've been working on it since I was 17. And so that shows that not only have I had a lot of stories come up over the years, but that it's been hard for me to tell these stories and I feel like one example is like the chapter about like the day my father passed and all the things that transpired through that day. And it's very clinical the way I write it down as opposed to writing from my heart because maybe I don't want to feel those things or think about those things. And I, I feel like I'll get there eventually. Maybe I need to stay home one day, have a whole bottle or two of wine and just <laughs> just snap away and get up on it cuz sometimes like like my dad my dad often told me if i saw something wrong fix it and he set me up to be like sort of like a soldier in this whole fight for life and so in my mind being a soldier means you always have to be strong and tough you can't be weak you can't cry about shit and you can't let anyone else see your weaknesses and when I think that way, it takes away from all the things that I'm feeling and all the things that I'm going through and also makes it hard for me to put my, put my stuff out there, even in an artistic form, even if it's going to help people. Because my dad thought crying was weak, even though it's not. And theoretically, I know it's not, but I still, I still struggle with Seeing past that and recognizing that it doesn't make me weak and moving forward with that. 
and who knows how long it's going to take me. I, I've, I've, I've been trying to get back to my teenage voice for a long time. And, um, eventually I'll get there. It's, it's just going to take me, take me some time, but I mean, I love writing. I, I love writing and I always feel I was, I, I wanted to be a writer from like, from when I started when I was 11 and part of me is like, Oh, nobody wants to see my writing, but like a lot of people want to see my writing. And it's not just because of my experiences and whatever identities I have and the things that I've gone through. But I, I, you know, as you saw from my performance the other day, I, I put a, a bunch of little stories in between all my poetry. I, I'm, I'm a smart ass all the time. I can't, I can't really turn that off. Um, and people like it when I bring humor to an otherwise fucked up situation because some people can't deal with uh, sad things. And I know I have a struggle. I have I struggle with dealing with sad things sometimes. And so I bring my smart assness in it and <laughs> and hope that people realize that, like, I'm. I'm talking about whatever the issue is, but I'm also making sure that we can laugh through the struggle because it sucks and it's hard. And that doesn't mean that I, I, that I, I can't laugh about it. Yeah. So. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I guess this book that you're talking about that you're release, you're saying like you're working on the book about your life. Like, is that one you plan to release uh, like in the future or what? Yeah. You know, I keep on it. <laughs> I keep on working on it, and I I pick it up and put it down and pick it up since I was seventeen, and I'm gonna be thirty four soon. So like, it's been a long, a long journey, and I and I think eventually I'll finish it. It might take a few more years. It might take more stories. It might take a ton of editing. It might take, like I said, a couple bottles of wine and just getting at my feelings and doing it. Um, but it's going to take that. And I, I feel like I have to see, I have to really get at the, the truth of how it felt, of how all these things felt, whether I want to feel them or not and get over it and write the story. Because at the end of the day, I know if I had, if I had my own E-man that was older than me, when I was a teenager or in my twenties who could have said, you got it. You'll be okay. Everything will be fine. It's okay to feel it's okay to go through what you're going through and that you're not alone. That might've changed my entire perspective over on, on things. And, and so I know it's, it's, it literally might be a matter of life and death for me to put this book out there for some other young woman who's struggling with being ill, doesn't know how to handle it, does all these self-destructive things because they don't know how to handle it and they don't have anybody else around them that understands what they're going through. Like, it just seems like it would be, it. this would be an important book for someone like that. And I know if I had it, it would have made a huge difference for me. And, um, and so it's, it's, important for me to actually put it out there and get, I need to just like, I'm always saying, you know, like people need to get out of their own ways. I need to get out of my own way, get over myself and do it. 
and and not be and not worry about how I'm feeling in the moment. Like if I need to sit and cry, I need to fucking sit and cry. Like I need to just get over it and just get out there and do it. So it's yeah. I can't put a time stamp on it just yet. But eventually. <laughs> but eventually. <laughs> and you said that at uh, other open mics before Stark Reality that they thought you were too much with your writing or Yeah, years ago I was going to this one, it was around Union Square. Um and they were like, could you not, you know, we might have children around. Don't, could you not use any profanity? And I'm just like, life is full of profanity. And also, life has a lot of other fucked up shit going on. So if you're worried about your kids hearing cuss words, you might want to just put them in a fucking bubble away from everybody forever. Because there's no way to avoid it. Like put MTV on and you're going to see a lot worse on there than hearing fuck. Like for real. <laughs> you said that Viviana's open mic, the stark reality was the first one that was more accepting of your style. Yeah. Years ago when we were doing, uh, we were doing a uh, wild Wednesdays and then, um, another poetry reading. I can't remember the name of it. Um, but we were doing those and, you know, that was the first place, like, I had always been, like, the type of person that was, like, I'm going to just do me and be honest and open and say whatever it is. And and my mom was always, like, no, 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 try not to cause any problems, don't cause any trouble. And I was just, like, I'm, how am I causing trouble by just being honest? Um, and Viviana was the first person that I had, that that I met who was an adult when I was still technically a child at 15, who was like, no, you are, you are perfectly fine doing what you're doing. Keep doing that. Keep being honest and open. Keep it, keep, keep your voice loud and your voice heard. And I ran with it. I ran with it so hard. And my mom did not like Viviana at all. She did not like her because she saw like there was this woman who was being a motherly figure to me and encouraging my teenage angst, I guess you could call it like encouraging it and, and telling me to just go do whatever it is that I wanted to do and that I could do it. And, and I, I feel like I needed that. Like I, I needed someone to just, to just say, you know what, do whatever it is that you want to do and do it to death. And you know, and I always felt like I could say, I could do, I, I could go into the poetry reading and be like, I hate all those crackers. And she'd be okay with that. And not that I would do that, but she would be okay with that because it's supposed to be open for everyone to have whatever thoughts and ideas that they have. And and mind you, like, like I said earlier, like you don't always agree with people, but it doesn't make you hate anybody. Like, there used to be this guy, <laughs> I don't even know if he's still alive or still around or whatever, and Viviana did not seem to like him, but she tolerated him. And he'd get up, and he had this this thick Ukrainian accent, and or maybe Russian. He had a thick Slavic accent, and uh, he'd get up and always be like, fuck this hole here, fuck this hole there. And I was just like, oh my God, 
Okay. That's awesome. And he felt the need to do it. Talking about the, like, the extra, extra gritty parks of New York. And, he, I mean, he did it. And she welcomed him. And who knows if he's still around. I don't even remember his name. Was that interesting, name, like, to, to hear about the grittier side? Because, like, not too many people. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I knew about certain gritty parts. But it wasn't like I was hanging out in brothels where they were doing heroin <laughs> and like, I didn't know anything about yeah. that. So, so he was like Bukowski, um, like times a thousand or something. Or? Times a thousand. <laughs> yes. Like extra, extra. And he would, he dressed the part all in black and, you know, tried to get me to come hang out with him when I was in my twenties. And I was just like, nah, bro, nah, I'm not, I don't, I am not even, even a teeny bit interested in that, but thank you. <laughs> Appreciate it, but I'm not. So, I mean, who knows? Maybe he's still out there cussing along. Maybe not. I don't know, but, <laughs> but that's the point of, of Viviana's readings that you can get up and do anything and everything and you're welcome because we're all there as a community of artists creating and doing our thing. And, and I always felt that she was, she was, you know, welcoming me and she can't, I mean, even when I was in the hospital, she came to see me a bunch of times and we would just like sit there and write together or talk about stuff or or any of that and and it was it was amazing to me that she still kept her energy while I was going through all this um i guess traumatic shit or whatever and that she was she was still present and still aware of it and okay with it like she knew that my shine wasn't going to be dimmed by whatever stuff was going on with me and She's treated me the same since the first time we met. And that's that's awesome and amazing. And I, I will always love and respect her. Like she's she's one of my favorite people in the world. And is your poetry similar to each other? Or um I think it's similar. I think that she is way she, I can be direct, but she is way more direct than I am. And so I feel like she'll she will say things right out there and I will use a more poetic frame of reference to say whatever I'm saying. Um so they're similar, but not the same, but similar. You yeah. talked a bit about the graphic novels, right? How is that that I mean that's like a different genre writing you're yeah. doing? Yeah, because I I mean, when I was in high school, I was um I did a lot of photography and a lot of painting and I still, you know, occasionally, and I worked for a photo assistant in my mid twenties. Um, um, and you know, this is the first time I've ever tried to like put together a whole, uh, storyboard with a graphic novel. And that's a whole other ball of wax from anything I've ever, uh, dealt with. Um, but one day, this was a few years ago, I was probably in the hospital again for some crazy lupus thing. And I was just like, I must've been on Facebook playing or something. And I was just like, I should do a graphic novel. Ding. And Cause I was looking for 
more uh, more characters that actually had disabilities who were main characters. And I found barely any, like maybe two, and they weren't even main characters. They were just part of the main group of characters, but not the main character and not featured very often. And I'm just like, this is kind of bullshit and I'm not really feeling it and I should just change that. Um, and so, and since I know so much about conspiracies and government stuff and like, I know a, a, a good amount of things about being an amputee, I was like, well, I could just mix this stuff. And so, um, I don't have a name for it, but I do have seven pages done of the, novel, the graphic novel. Um, and so I'm trying to, cause I know people who do publishing. And do you do the drawing I, too, or is it just the writing and you're having an illustrator? You know, I'm doing very, very bad drawings. Um, but I did have the drawings and hopefully I will have an illustrator. Um, but I did the writing and, uh, I was trying to find, I, I bought this, this, uh, what was it called? Um, this computer that did graphics. It was like a Samsung computer, but it, it lost the password and it wasn't doing the right. It didn't have the right programs for me to draw on it. So I think I might use my, my iPad, but I'm just doing everything in the notebook for now, get it out that way. And then I'll be like, here, make this look less like a five-year-old did it. And <laughs> hopefully it'll, it'll, it'll work out. But I, I like the story. And, um, and I also did like a 10 page children's book about an amputee who was new to being an amputee and talked about how much she loved her new legs and they made her so awesome and cool. And that was very catered towards little kids. Um, so it's both of them. And, and like I said, in the beginning, I, I wish I could clone myself because <laughs> there's so many different things that I want to do, but because I have a job and need to pay my bills and all this stuff, it kind of like takes the back burner, but I still carry it around with me. I always have my notebook. I always have my iPad. I always have my crochet stuff on me just in case I will have a minute to actually do something else. Um, Sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. It just depends on the day. Is there like a difference with um, writing a gra like gra writing a graphic novel and like write or writing fiction in general, and then writing uh, poetry that's more personal and real? Like, how does the process differ for each? Well, I know from doing because I've I've published the chapbooks, the poetry chapbooks, and I've published articles and short stories and all that stuff. Um, and so that's completely different from like when you're doing a graphic novel, it's got to be more conversational. And so that was really hard for me to like, okay, this has to fit into little boxes and little bubbles. And it has to be more like a personal conversation or, um, even if it's a monologue, it's got to be broken down in, in ways, as opposed to like when you're doing poetry or with a story, you can basically do whatever you want to do. Um, and so that's been, that's been sort of a struggle with me. Cause as you can tell, I am very wordy and <laughs> I, I can go on and on and, uh, doing that in a graphic novel, it will, you'll probably lose readers. 
and you might not you might not have the people actually pay attention to the the over the the theme of the thing you're trying to say um so i wrote i i when i started first working on this graphic novel i i wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and then i went back and like chopped it up because I didn't know how to just start from scratch with very little and move forward from there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and also you have to find some, an artist who can draw whatever you're coming up with in that graphic novel. And I know artists, um, but you have to find an artist that you sort of have a right, the right fit with and that actually wants to do the stuff that you're doing. And so it's, it's not like I have like the artists from the walking dead who are like, sure, let me do this with you. Like I have like extra, extra community folks. And like, I know people in publishing. I know people who actually help people to write books and, and get their stuff out there. Um, but it's a whole different ball of wax when you're doing a graphic novel and it's, you know, but I'm determined. I'm determined to make it happen and determined to like get it done and um and i will get it done this is gonna take me it's gonna take me a bit of time nice and uh i guess it's neat to like switch between the two like using your imagination and writing fiction and then talking about something real like oh yeah totally and i mean in when i was first working on it i was just like trying to uh what is it like divorce myself from the story being told because people were automatically assuming, Oh, you're the amputee in the story. No, I'm not. I'm a completely different person from the character that I'm writing in this. And yes, we both happen to be amputees, but she's completely different from who I am. And, you know, I'm writing from a place of, yes, I've been through this and yes, I've dealt with it, but she's a completely different character from me. So, um, I guess, uh, like, any final thoughts or anything you'd like to say? You know, a while ago, probably a few months, no, yeah, this was before I started this job. So this was, like, eight, eight-ish months ago. An amputee friend of mine told me that if you need to be a bitch to make your point, to get things done, to do whatever it is that you need to do to help folks and help yourself, do it and be it. And I do my, I try my best to be nice to people on a regular basis and not be a bitch. Cause I don't want anyone to be a bitch to me off the, off the bat when I haven't done anything wrong. And then it applies to everyone else, but I am, I can be bitchy to people from time to time <laughs> or people think I'm automatically, uh, unapproachable. Even though people come up to me all the time, every single time I leave my house. So I don't know how I'm suddenly unapproachable. And the point of me saying this is that you have to be a strong-willed person to deal with all the shit that I've been dealing with for the last 17 years. Because aside from, I, I believe I said this at the, at the poetry reading, like of all the minorities that I'm in, um, being an amputee has been the one that I've been treated the worst. And 
people are always so surprised that I'm still, as one guy put it, that I'm so strong-willed. Like, how would that change? Because I don't have two legs and one knee. Like, that has nothing to do with that. And if anything, I've gotten more strong-willed because people are dicks. And I'm not going to have anyone trash talk me or treat me like a piece of crap because I don't have legs. And that goes for anybody dealing with whatever physical disability, mental disability, or any kind of anything. Like, don't let people walk all over you, period. Every single person deserves to be respected in this world. And it's sort of become my, my job to make people see disability in a completely different way. And... You know, I just want folks to, re to realize and recognize that I am still a person, period. And every single person with a disability is still a person. And I'm not going anywhere. As you can tell, I'm very hard to kill. So, you know, it's, I, I just want for people to, to be respectful to people with disabilities. And that's, that's basically, if I could like stamp that on my head, like I totally would. Um, but all I can do is be, be, go out in the world and be a smart ass and hope that people just see the jokes in the seriousness and, you know, recognize that I'm still a person. Like, and that's why you were making that one character like very different from you to just show that well, you're still yeah, very yeah. different people, even though you're both amp Yeah. Yeah, and, and that people are different. Like, everybody's different. And just because someone is disabled or, or, or an amputee or in a wheelchair or whatever, that doesn't mean that they can't be an asshole. Like, people can be assholes no matter what their physical ailment is. And I have met tons of disabled folks who are straight-up dicks. Don't give a shit about other people. Don't give a shit about whatever things that they're doing in the world. Don't give a shit about how they're coming off to people. And I don't know if it has anything to do with their disability. It might not. But they're just dicks. And I don't care. And it doesn't make you a saint because you're suddenly disabled. And it doesn't make you a saint because you've been disabled for a while. Like The, the, the measure of someone's character has nothing to do with what's going on with them physically or emotionally. It has to do with the way they treat other people and how they are in, in the world. So... Words to the wise. Don't be a dick. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah. So I'm, I'm glad uh, uh, we actually got to doing this. Like, I know. Uh, I know, I know. We, we had some technical difficulties at first. Like, we tried yeah, New York uh, the Skype. <laughs> <laughs> Been here my whole life, and I still don't like it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and te yeah. technological issues that too. But mostly, yeah, I mean, it might not have the best uh, sound quality this episode, but I think the content was good. Like we had a good uh, BSing feel kind of conversational. Yeah, totally. like, I'm still trying to find that like balance, like keeping it conversational, but like also interviewing and bringing the person out too. So. Totally. And we can also we can always also like always when it gets like, a little warmer, we can meet up we and do it in person. Um, and, uh, and make that happen. Like when it's a little warmer, like have a part two. Part two. Wow. Maybe that's a setup for a sequel, a possible sequel.
Uh, okay, and uh, yeah, I hope that was the interview. I hope you enjoyed it. So uh, yeah, if you want to keep updated with uh, Iman Ramawi and her work, you could uh, look up Iman Ramawi on Facebook. She has a Facebook page uh, where she posts everything. It's uh, E M A N R I M A. W-I, and uh, I'll also post a link to it in the description, so uh, yeah, and if you want to keep updated with future episodes of BSing with Sean K, go to bsingwithseank.blogspot.com, that's B-S-I-N-G-W-I-T-H, S-E-A-N-K, .blogspot.com and there's a link to my Twitter, my Facebook, my YouTube, and everything else. And uh, that about does it for this episode. I'll catch you on the next one.